City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. It is typically my policy to never tell stories about my kids when I'm preaching. At least not in a way that you could identify something that one of them did. I, I just think it's, you know, it's sometimes unfair that they get to be the, would it be the butt of the jokes. However, however, I am going to make an exception this morning. We were traveling from Michigan to Atlanta a few weeks ago, and when I'm driving, especially with the kids in the car, I just want to go. I want to minimize the amount of time that we are in the car together. And so we decided to stop and get some McDonald's. All of you healthy CrossFitters can judge me later for eating McDonald's on a trip, fine, I don't care. But we decide to go into this McDonald's in the middle of Kentucky. And so as we're in this McDonald's, we have ordered our food, and now we're waiting to get our Happy Meals, etc. And one of my sons, one of my sons walks over to the windowsill uh, near where the Coke machine is. And there is, on this windowsill, pool of liquid. I don't know what this pool of liquid is. He doesn't know what this pool of liquid is. And one of my sons, one of my sons who is old enough to know better, takes his hand and swabs it across this liquid and begins his investigation of it by inserting his hand into his mouth. I just looked at my kid. It's like, oh, forever unclean. It's gross. I mean, it's just, it's just disgusting. Like, you don't know what that is. Why are you? Uh, and it's like, you don't even know where to start with, like, the complex levels of grossness that he has violated. It's just, it is, it was very, very, it was, it was gross, right? We all have a category for gross for unclean, for impure, right? Those of us who live here in St. Pete and have lived here for a few years uh, know all about this when it comes to the water of the bay, right? You guys remember a few years ago, the city may or may not have let a quarter of a billion gallons of semi-treated, maybe, sewage into the bay, right? What did that make us feel about the bay for a long time? Not going in there. But as a percentage, it was like less than a fraction of a percent of the bay was untreated sewage. Does that matter? No. Why? Because I want zero, not close to zero percent sewage in my water. I want absolutely zero zero sewage in my water. That's how I would say the water is clean. If there's a fraction of a percent, it doesn't matter. It is not clean. I tell this story about my son's grossness, about the city's grossness in some ways, because I want to talk about the idea of holiness. As a culture, we don't really have handles for holiness. We have handles for the idea of purity, right? Is the water in the bay pure or not? We have handles for the grossness, right? Is my child gross in this scenario? Yes, he was. 
But holiness, while related to that, is something more. Holiness is more than just purity. Holiness is, is absolute moral perfection and purity. But we don't really know how to grasp that. We don't know how to hold that in our minds. Because by and large, we don't see it. Right? We as a culture have become jaded about just about everything. Right? Most of our, all of our heroes have flaws. Isn't that like what every movie is about these days? And, and sometimes the TV shows that get the most regard are when the guy that's the bad guy, well, he's actually the hero, but he's kind of a bad guy. This is the Breaking Bad plot that sort of has been a big deal. But we don't have any category for somebody who is absolutely morally perfect. And not only that, when we start to think about if somebody was to be morally perfect. If there's something that was truly holy, that also requires a level of separation from everything else, doesn't it? And so, we can think about gross, we can think about pure or impure, but when we begin to think about what does it mean that God is holy, we can't quite catch it. See, we love stories about God's nearness. We love stories about how God draws near to us, how God is with us. We love singing songs about how Jesus is walking with us through our days or walking through the garden like the old hymn says with us. But it's really hard for us to think about God being completely pure and separate from us. We like stories of God being near, but we don't quite know what to do with the stories of God being holy. And the reason is, the reason for our mild allergy to holiness is that you and I do not recognize or respect the holiness of God. And because of that, because we don't recognize and respect the holiness of God, we don't see our sins as very serious. So we've been talking about the life of David over the past few months here at City Church. And we're going to read a story today that is one of the stranger stories in the Bible. And it's a story about God's holiness. So what I want to do is invite you to read along with me. I'm going to read out loud. You can read to yourself. Uh, the words will be on the screen behind me, um, or you can pull it up in your Bible. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 6 together and begin to ask the question, what, is it, what would it mean for us to recognize the holiness of God. So stand with me as I read 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. 
with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for an oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. David was angry with the Lord because he had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into his, the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God before, uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So at the center of this story is the Ark of the Covenant. This is something we know probably more from Indiana Jones than from the Bible. Right? Indiana Jones' first adventure was to save the world from the Nazis stealing the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, the Ark of the Covenant is a huge part of the Old Testament. When the people of Israel got to Mount Sinai, when God gave them instructions on how they were to conduct themselves, at the centerpiece of their worship, at the centerpiece of worship in the Old Testament, was this Ark. And it was made of um, the berries that healthy people eat, um, with A-C-A-I-A-I-I-A-A. -A 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 -A. I'm 
believe it's Asaye, or as I like to call it, Akasha. Um, it was made out of actually the wood that comes from those sort of trees. And it was a box about four foot long and about two foot wide and about two foot tall. And then it was laid over in gold. And then on top of it was placed uh, this part that was called the mercy seat. And it had two angels with their wings bent inward. And this box, this ark, was the symbol of God's presence. It was the symbol of who God was. And so when they set up camp as they moved through the wilderness, guess what was in the middle of the camp? The ark. And when they went out and went wherever God told them to go, guess what went out before them? Yep, you guessed it. It's what I'm talking about. It's not a, that bad of a rhetorical question. The ark went with them. And God gave them incredibly detailed instructions about this ark. In fact, one of the things he told them is, when you build it, put rings on the sides of the ark so that you can slide poles through the rings, and when you need to move the ark, you slide the poles in, and people pick it up and carry it. So this ark is incredibly significant, and it's been captured by the Philistines, and for about 30 years, the Philistines have had this ark, and there's, there's some great stories about what happened to the Philistines when they had this ark. There's a great one, if you want to go look up one time, that involves golden mice and golden hemorrhoids. There's a story in the Bible about golden hemorrhoid statues. Um, it's a lot of fun. But the people of uh, the Philistines had said, this ark is bad for us. We're going to put it away. And so they sort of put it on a hill, kind of in the side of Philistine country. And it basically just sat there. And David decides that if he is going to establish the kingdom of God, if he's going to unite the people of Israel, they need to unite around something good. They need to unite around God. So what better way to do that than to get the very symbol of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it to the capital city? This seems like a very good idea. Right? This would be something akin to, you know, we've got a church. We should probably have a cross in our church. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a no-brainer. This is the same level of no-brainer that David's going after. And so... He says, let's go get it. And he gets 30,000 people, and they all come and, come and get it. And he finds these two guys, the sons of Abinadab, who, by the way, were priests, who should have known the law of God. But something happens. They decide that carrying this ark, has a lot of gold on it, and it's fairly heavy, is somewhat inconvenient. The way that the Philistines always moved it around was by putting it on a cart so it was easy to move. And so Uzzah and his brother Ahio decide that they're going to, they're going to honor God. They're going to build a fresh cart for the ark. And then that's what they're going to use to transport. And so they do. And so the oxen is going along. Imagine your old Oregon Trail game, right? But instead of a Conestoga wagon behind them, they've got this giant golden Ark of the Covenant, and it's, it's moving along, and then something happens. Tragedy strikes. The ox hits a pothole. The Ark begins to fall, and it's almost as if in the story, things slow down. The ox stumbles. You see the Ark, the ark in this cart start to tilt over, and Uzzah decides, I can't let this ark touch the ground. It's 
it's important that this ark doesn't touch the ground. And so he reaches out as if in slow-mo to steady the cart, to steady the ark, and he touches it. And as soon as he touches it, God lashes out and kills Uzzah for touching the ark. Happy story, right, church? This is just all full of nice, warm fuzzies. Touch God's stuff and He'll kill you. Is, is that what we're supposed to take away from this? Well, yeah. I know. You see, the reason why this strikes us is odd. The reason why this story, we hear it, and it makes us tilt our heads and squint our eyes is because we don't recognize the holiness of God. We look at Uzzah and we say, he was trying his very best. Right? He was trying his very best to do the right thing. But Uzzah made a couple of mistakes. That wasn't head. Uzzah made a couple of mistakes. One of the mistakes Uzzah made was that he didn't pay attention to how he should have been carrying the ark. God didn't say put the ark on a cart. God said, I made rings so you put the poles in and carry it. Uzzah was trying to worship God the way that the Philistines did. And then when Uzzah tried to steady the ark, he made the mistake of thinking that his hands were any cleaner than the dirt that the ark was about to fall on. See, what Uzzah was failing to do was recognize how absolutely holy God is. Because Uzzah probably didn't have categories for that, just like we don't have categories for that. But this story reminds us that we can't worship God however we want. You see, that's very popular for us to think. That's our culture inundates us with this idea. Look, as long as you're worshiping God, everything is fine. Everything's okay as long as you're worshiping God. And this story jumps off the page and says, no, God cares not just about what you do, but he cares about the way that you do it. His holiness not only demands that we consider our goals, the holiness of God demands that we consider the means that we go about getting it's not just what we're trying to do that matters. How we're doing it matters as well. That's how big the holiness of God is. And that's hard for us, especially those of us who are here who have been Christians for a long time. We often want to take shortcuts to get to the right thing, don't we? If you're a parent, you know all about this, right? I will probably take any shortcut I can to get my kids to be reasonably well-behaved in public. Right? Like, like whatever I've got to do to make them reasonably well-behaved in public, that's the thing I'm going to do. As long, if I could just get my kids to turn out reasonably well by the time that they're 18, I'll take some shortcuts if you can find them for me. Right? I'll, I'll be happy to do, you know, to do whatever it takes. Look, I need this promotion at work. And yeah, yeah, I've got to lie and I've got to throw 
another employee under the bus, but, but if I get this promotion, think of all the good I'll be able to do when I'm the manager. Think of how kind I'll be able to be to all of my employees. The, the changes that I could make around here is going to make this place a better place. So if I've got to be unkind to a couple people along the way, well, the ends justify the means. They don't. God cares about the ends and the means. And not only that, He cares that we are particularly attentive to His Word. I mean, honestly, most of us, as I mentioned before, know more about the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones than we do from the Bible. And that's just about the same as with Uzzah. He wasn't paying attention that God said very clearly, do this. This is how you carry the ark. It's the poles, guys. He didn't pay attention to that. You know, it's interesting. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one of the things that uh, is often lobbied against Christianity, is lobbed against the Bible, is this idea. That the Bible is just our humans' wish about what we hope God is. It's just our wishful thinking about what we think God is. And that's a critique that some people make about the Bible. And I understand that, but think about that when it comes to this story. If we were just trying to write a good picture of who we wish God was, if the humans just decided, let's just, let's just make up a lot of really nice stories and moral tales and talk about who God is and we'll do, it'll be really nice, why in the world would you put a story about God striking down somebody who is trying to do something good? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because this story reminds us about something that is absolutely uncomfortable about God. And that is that he's holy. So David calls off the party, sends all 30,000 people in this parade home and says, we quit. I'm going to get to David in a minute. But what happens next in the story is after a few months, they make another attempt to move this ark to Jerusalem. And when they do, it's interesting. It says all of the people who bore the ark were there. Guess what that means they found? They decided to ditch the cart idea and get the poles. Good idea, right? This is, this is like when you finally, like when you stretch your phone out for too long. You know, you, you but, but my phone is free. I, I'm not making payments on my phone. I, everything is fine. This phone is good. And your phone is terrible. And then you get that new phone. And you're like, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is how phones are supposed to work. Right? My, my iPhone 3GS that I was still creeping along here 15 years later. You know. It's like, oh. This is what happens. They decide, no more carts for the ark. Let's try to do what God says. And it works out. But not everybody is so happy about this situation. Because as soon as they get back into Jerusalem, who is waiting? It's almost, the picture it paints is almost as if she is standing at her window. David's wife, Michael. And she is looking out. You can almost hear her clicking her tongue. David. 
David, you look like an idiot. David, you look like a fool. Dancing out here in front of this ark. What, what are the... David. And it's interesting that it says Michael despised David in her heart. And so then David goes back and he makes the sacrifices and he comes home to bless his household, to bring cake. Right? He brings cake and the first words out of Michael's mouth when he gets in the door is, look who it is. The king of Israel. Look how the king of Israel made himself look good today. She is just dripping with sarcasm. She is just dripping with hatred to her husband. She says, you made a fool of yourself. And David's response, I, I love, oh, oh, you think this is foolish? Ah, you haven't even seen foolish yet. I'll make myself even more foolish. Watch me. But before we get to David, before we get to his response, I just want to take a second and look at Michael, because I think that what we see in Michael is the opposite of what we saw in Uzzah. Bear with me here. In Uzzah, we saw somebody who said, I can do whatever I want. I can worship God however I want. Put it on a cart. doesn't matter. Reach out and touch it. Everything is fine. In Michael, we see something different. We see somebody who is rigid. Kings should not dance. Kings should be stoic. This is something we see when we sort of look across the pond of England. Right? The queen is incredibly regal. Right? The queen is always very staid. This was what was funny when, when the, the pastor spoke at the royal wedding a few weeks ago, and he was an American pastor. The, the clips of all of the British royalty watching this American pastor preach was all, like, you could almost hear them say, ooh, tuck, tuck. Mm. Don't be distasteful, sir. Right? This, this is the attitude that Michael had. This sort of rigid, this isn't the way that we act. It almost implies a British accent, doesn't it? When she says this stuff to David, you can hear her putting her four o'clock tea down on the table to do it, the clinking of china. And while it's easy for us to listen to this and, and kind of joke about her being sort of bougie, What's actually going on is something that's going on in your heart and mind. Which is that when we look at other people, especially when other people are being joyful, we look at them with contempt, especially when their sins are different than ours. How often do you hold contempt in your heart over people whose brokenness is different than your brokenness. I do that more than I want to Because it makes me feel good to feel like I'm better than somebody else. And I can't make, and I can't say that somebody who does the same stuff wrong that I do wrong is worse than me. So what I do is I find somebody who does something different than I do. And I say, well, 
At least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not that person. This is Michael. And as you read this, you can just hear Michael's self-righteousness dripping off the page as she tells David, this isn't the way that kings should act. But while you have Uzzah, who, who doesn't care what God says, while you have Michael, who is self-righteous, the character in this story that we see that is so dynamic and moving is David. And I think we can find ourselves in some ways in David's story as we look at this. Because what happens when Uzzah dies? Is David say, oh yeah, serve the right, he was doing the wrong thing. No, David gets angry. He calls off the party. He sends everyone home and it says he was angry at God. And you know what the Bible doesn't say? That God was mad at David for being angry. No, it understands. Because David said, why have you done this, God? He was taking his anger to God, not directing it at God. And David was asking, why? Why? Why is this happening? And as he goes home, something interesting happens. As this ark, as the ark of the covenant sits on the floor of the threshing field of a guy named Obed Something happens to Obed-Eden's family and his fields. God starts blessing them. What's really interesting is, best we can tell, Obed-Eden wasn't from Israel. His name literally means Obed, who's from Edom. Edom as in not Israel. And God starts blessing this outsider. And David says, What's going on there? God is blessing people through his presence. Well then, let's go get his presence. Let's go get the... God, let's go get the place where this blessing is coming from. But do you know what he does the second time? He makes sure that they're doing things according to the way God has told them to do. He goes and gets the sticks. No cart. Let's get the sticks. And let's carry the ark. And then he sacrifices. And then as they bring it to Jerusalem, he finds joy. He is dancing. He is excited because God is going to be the center of the life of this people. And he dances for that. And not only does he dance for that, but he shares and dances with all the people. And then when they make sacrifices, the kind of sacrifices he made are not the one that just the priests got to eat. He made sacrifices so that everybody could enjoy the blessing and bounty of God. So that everybody went home with a steak and bread and cake. David threw a party. And this party that David threw was rooted in his new understanding of the holiness of God. What changed in David between abandoning the ark at Obed-Edom's house and coming back to the ark and bringing it to Jerusalem, what changed was his understanding of the holiness of God. He grew. He started to recognize and respect the holiness of God. He started to take 
his sin and the sin of the other people around him seriously. And as he did that, all of a sudden, joy flowed out of it. You see, this whole story, in a way, points us to the holiness of God to remind us of the only human who ever lived a holy life. It ain't you. It ain't me. It's Jesus. See, Jesus kept all of God's laws, even the persnickety ones like using poles to carry the Ark of the Covenant. He kept all of God's laws, and he didn't just do it in the goals that he had. He didn't just do it in what he was aiming for. He did it in the very means that he accomplished them as well. And the reason that he did that is so that when he died to forgive you and to forgive me, he doesn't just set us back to moral zero. God doesn't just say, you're forgiven, now don't screw up again. You're forgiven, go try hard to be moral. No. He says, you're forgiven, and I'm going to give you all of the credit that I have from living a perfect life. Jesus not only takes away our sin on the cross, but Jesus gives us His holiness, His holy record. So that when God looks at us, God doesn't see all the ways that we are broken and messed up. God sees the holiness of Jesus. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me here, 2018? I think what this passage points us to is to remember, recognize, and respect God's holiness. Because what happens is, as we begin to have a greater view of the holiness of God, things begin to change in my life. If I realize how holy God is, how much He cares about every little thing and how His perfection is in everything. When we begin to see that, what happens is, I begin to take my sin more seriously. Because I realize how far short I am. And as I begin to take my sin more seriously, I begin to see that Jesus' love for me is greater. I begin to understand the sweetness of God's love because of how much He loves me, because of how I realize my sin is. And when I begin to see Jesus in that way, when I begin to savor Him, that sweetness will lead me to a generous and joyful love as others, just like David did. And when I begin to see and savor Jesus in all of His holiness, I'll also be attentive to His Word. May God work that in 